Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Agency Podcast. We're here with uh, Agent Sarah from beautiful Edmonton. And we're here because we have three agents have all watched one documentary. And the documentary is called Scott Walker, 30 Century Man from 2006. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about it. And we're all in Canada. I'm in Toronto with Eugene, and um, it's great to have you on again, Sarah. You are a regular contributor now. Yeah, it's nice to be an, an honorary agent, and it's nice <laughs> to have an, an all-Canadian production this time. Correct. Um, yeah, so this came about, we should almost get the book Goth and get you to read what I read in Goth, but um, I had read a book by Lull Tolhurst, and it mentioned this musician, the Walker brothers and Scott Walker, how he's a leader to punks and goth. And I'm like, what the hell? I've never even heard of him. So then a, a mutual friend of all of us from blogging days came on and said, you haven't heard of Scott Walker. Here's a documentary. And we all thought we'll, we'll watch it and talk about it. So what did you think? Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. I'm not, just to be clear, I'm not a, a musician or a musical person necessarily, hmm. but I do love um watching musical documentaries just to see that creative process yeah um, I love seeing what goes on behind the scenes I'm not as big on like concert footage or uh lifestyle documentaries but mm -hmm. I, I really dig seeing what what they do in the studio how how do they get this music out like what even happens and this has to be one of the most fascinating <laughs> glimpses into the creative process I've ever seen it it's very very bizarre at times but because scott walker was so i don't know he, they describe him as avant-garde in a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of places i looked at but uh, i would say more experimental almost mm -hmm. especially it's also a document of a remarkable transformation from somebody who started out as a sugary pop singer um with a group called the Walker Brothers, who were neither brothers nor named Walker. <laughs> and interestingly enough, they were making music that reminded me very much of the Righteous Brothers, who were neither brothers nor righteous. Oh. Um, and I thought when I when I saw the beginning of it that, oh, yeah, he's a, he had a voice and the record company is pushing them in this direction because, well, if it sounds like these guys, it'll be a hit. Um, but he transformed over decades into someone who had no interest at all in the commercial aspects of his work and really um, wanted to make art. Yeah, I want to just jump over here for one second. So I didn't know the Walker Brothers, but when the documentary started playing, I did recognize a song. I recognized, I guess they had a hit. They were a little bit like Jerry and the, I call them like Jerry and the Pacemakers. The Righteous Brothers works too. So we're talking about the 60s. And I certainly don't know, I'm more comfortable being well aware of 80s and 90s music than I am of 60s music. That's for sure. But I mean, I thought they were like Jerry and the Pacemakers. But one of the songs is, the sun ain't gonna shine anymore. And I went, oh, I do know that song. That was a big hit. Yeah, I do know that song. I didn't know who it was. And I've heard it probably 10 times in my life. But if you had asked me, I would have guessed Righteous Brothers. Correct. Yeah. And sure. I would have said if you hummed it to me, I would have thought, or Hermit and the Hermits, I might have guessed too. One of those boy bands from the 60s. And that's exactly what the the Scott Brothers were. So it begins. The Walker Brothers. The Walker Brothers. Yes, not Scott Walker. 
the Walker Brothers. It begins in the 60s and they have long hair mop tops like Mick Jagger or the Beatles. And so you're watching the straight ahead fan club boy band. And like Eugene says, something starts to change. And, uh, you know, you start to follow. Who is it? And then they show a lot of musicians. There's like talking heads and they're like, yeah, who's Scott Walker? Nobody knows who Scott Walker is. What's he all about? Where's he? And they say he's reclusive. He's eccentric. He's, um, they even say he gets angry or is he drunk? So there's all this in the first few minutes where you're like, well, well, who is it? <laughs> and you start to follow his career. I, I guess the big question raised by this documentary is, um, was Scott, did Scott Walker change or mm. was this always Scott Walker? And he was somehow able to kind of mold himself into that pop icon mm. place for just a short period of time. Now, that's a really interesting point, Sarah. Yeah. I think that yeah. um, he was like a few other acts from the same period that managed to find a career through the pop music genre on the very outskirts of it. And I'm thinking of, um, let's see, who else would there be? Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart. Mm -hmm. um, Bjork. Bjork would be another example. People who somehow managed to uh, do enough work that fit into the machine to be included in it, even though really they couldn't possibly sustain being part mm -hmm. of uh, the star maker machinery. Yeah, and you said something to me when we were just saying we were going to meet Sarah. You said this was a story that went in reverse. Yeah, more of us did because you start off with success. He starts <laughs> off with riches. <laughs> and I wouldn't say he moves into rags, but he definitely did come down in profile voluntarily. Yeah. Yes. In fact, there's there's one point in the documentary in the 80s where he's talking about his very, very 80s uh album climate of hunter i listened to some of it it is if if you're ever nostalgic if you ever want to go back to the 80s for a brief period of time listen uh -huh. to climate of hunter wow. it will take you there for sure um i'd never heard that one i was only familiar with the 60s work but okay um yeah so he starts off with like you say in a boy band he's got it all he's got the popularity everybody thinks he's cute that mm -hmm. comes up a lot in the documentary it does well he was very good looking he was, he was dreamy yeah yeah he did he had that conventional I wouldn't say like a surfer look or anything, but no. definitely like a, you know, nice looking guy. So he starts off with that, but he starts to move away from it more and more. And as he's being interviewed in the 80s and they ask him, you know, do you think that you're going to have another hit like you did in the 60s? He's like, oh, man, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he said he never wanted to make money. He doesn't care about money. That was still in the 60s when they're talking to the three musicians together, the band. He goes, they're like, I want to get girls. I want to get money. But, He's like, I'm not interested. Yeah, but still, rich or poor, it's good to have money. <laughs> well, yes. And I think that helped him produce records. Uh, having a the other record. really strange yeah. thing is that in between his sort of seminal creative works, he did albums that one commentator characterized bluntly as middle of the road slop. <laughs> oh yeah and he had a bizarre trajectory too like he at one point he was doing country yeah yeah like a little right. bit of country music was like it tom Rush covered it was tom just, uh, i think so yeah yeah oh, well, i guess it's a folk music musician right yeah so you see all the success you see he's on tv in the 60s 
And then you see, he also did look slightly unusual, even for the 60s. And at one point, he says that he was actually a beatnik from the States who lived in America. And how he dresses in the 60s is very unusual. Tight black jeans, black shirt, sunglasses. He always, almost always had sunglasses on. Um, and it turns out that he tells some fun stories about drinking with his drinking buddies. Which apparently he did plenty of. Right. That may have been part of his career fall. Wasn't just that he was very creative and he wanted to do something experimental, but he may have also been distracted by wine women and whatever. <laughs> he said somewhere in there that he, he didn't produce anything for 20 years and blames himself. You know, he yeah, says a number I, of times, it's all my fault. Yeah. He did. Yeah. He takes full responsibility, which is so rare in the world of music. But yeah, he, I uh, think that was recovery culture that he's been in recovery. Yeah, I think absolutely. that was really him owning his own path. I, that would, yeah, was familiar of recovery. Yeah. Yes. Which is, again, kind of kind of unusual to yeah. see for someone coming out of that culture. And he hung out with like the top people. I think that was kind of what got him on that cycle, really, is he was hanging out with the, uh, the Stones' manager and mm -hmm. traditional party life when he had that pop mainstream yes. success. Yes. But then, and unfortunately, it's such a weird paradox because he wouldn't have had the opportunity to do any of the later stuff he did without that mainstream success. Probably and true. yet it's not the mainstream success. We're not talking about him today because of his mainstream success. No. I don't care about the Walker Brothers or his, right. Uh, right. his handful of schlocky albums, you know. Uh, yeah. It's really just his later experimental stuff. That we're and talking also about. because his experimental stuff turned out to be tremendously influential on a number of other musicians, such as Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, for instance. Boy, if you put the recent Nick Cave mm -hmm. and Warren Ellis music on beside some Hilt. of the Scott Walker Hilt. material, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. And like the, the one where they were beating up on the on the meat. Yeah, I mean, and that's very much like Tom Waits too. Yeah, he yeah. was doing that kind of work with all kinds of found instruments. Right. right. So yeah. I want to clarify: when you say beating on the meat, we're talking about um, there's the, the documentary itself. I was trying to think of how how successful was this story time. I think there were a lot of really interesting things in the documentary. One was that they in 2004 they do I think about 2004 2006 they go into a studio when he's recording his last album, The Drift, I believe, and he does get a fellow, a percussionist, to pound a raw beef steak or something or ribs, beef or pork? ribs or pork i think it was i think it was a, a big chunk of pork it was like pork based <laughs> percussion pork and the guy didn't use percussion. anything to beat it he didn't have any hammers or anything no. he's literally just punching some pork. yes yes getting instructions from the sidelines yes. uh, don't punch it quite like that punch it like this yes so i could have watched that like you i could have watched all that stuff for an hour or two i found that really interesting and the weird noises they were making and then when they played it back it was really fabulous um it was for the album drift and what blew me away watching this studio footage is there were no i didn't see any conventional instruments no. anywhere no, there was a giant wooden cube there was some pork <laughs> there was a some, some metal things that they were banging together yeah. and somebody had a hammer like just yeah. but they did bring in strings and and they recorded some uh almost symphonic kind of stuff but yeah and, and nothing it, that it, you could recognize no and it did become almost melodic um if i was a psychonaut i might say that he's an audio knot 
he's exploring the the space of sound right there were two other things i really liked in the documentary was that it was ahead of its time because what they had what we now see on youtube are listening parties or or reaction videos where you get those two twins. We've talked about them on the podcast before. You get the two twins who have never heard the Rolling Stones. They mm-hmm. listen to it, and then they, you watch their faces listening to the album for the first time. Or um, Eugene, you're watching Amy Schaefer. She's a harpist. Yeah, harpist, listening to rock and roll, which she, has, she grew up without hearing any pop music. And now she's not just reacting to it, but also taking it apart and looking at it uh, from a classical music perspective and talking about how the different instruments are working to create the Mm -hmm. kind of emotional content that Mm -hmm. the artist is trying to get at. Right. So in this film, they actually had almost all the talking heads take turns listening to a Scott Walker song. And that was in 2006, where I don't think those reaction videos, they're all in the last, what, five years? Yeah. Five, 10 years, not. So I think that was a very avant-garde in itself or adventurous to have these listening um, reactions. David Bowie, it was beautiful. David Bowie goes, listen to that bass. And I'm like, I didn't even know there was a bass in there. (laughs) You know, now if I go back to a lot of 80s music from like the Pet Shop Mm -hmm. Boys to the Smiths um, to Depeche Mode, you can hear this guy all over all of of those bands. Yeah. Really. And, and, you know, a lot of the goth material um, really has some of the same flavor. And which was astounding to me, Knowing when I read the Lal Tulhurst book, I knew every page. Every page of the book was a delight and then hit Scott Walker. And that was a huge influence. I'm like, I never heard of this guy. Never heard of him at all. So that was really weird to me. Um, What a great discovery, though. Um, What else did you notice? Go ahead. I'm curious. uh, You know, the the idea of introducing someone to Scott Walker. Do you feel that um, his voice is like a, a maker it's, it could be a deal breaker for a lot of people. I do. Now, I'll you either have to hate it or love I, it. I agree. I, I do think it's a deal breaker. I'll tell you something. When he was in his Jacques Real phase, when he came out of the boy band and he was doing that, uh, I was like, I, I don't want to listen to it. I, I like it that he's doing it. It's like a lounge band. But, but when he but you know who ran with that, yeah. like Tom Waits did Frank's Wild Years. Absolutely. And it had that kind of drunken Yes. Feel about it. Yes. The very similar kind of spirit. It definitely was. But it was not my favorite. I probably wouldn't play that album. Although the poetry was really coming to the front in, in, on that album. The words, the lyrics were incredible. What I liked was when in the film he says, and it's obviously the last few years of his life. I mean, he looks very healthy. It's shocking that he's passed away since they made that film, because he looked really quite good. He was 75, and I think at that age, anything can happen. Anything can happen. No. Yeah. Even if you have a healthy lifestyle. And he sort of indicated that he didn't have the healthiest lifestyle. Right, that's true. So at at some point, he's talking, he said, I just want to be, we just want a male voice. I'm just trying to provide the male voice. I don't want it to be my voice. It's not a character. A voice. A male voice. And I thought, wow, have you ever accomplished that? So those albums, like I said, Tilt and Drift, I do intend on maybe taking some uh, medicinal plants and and exploring. (laughs) I have to say, I like his 60s stuff. And I found it really interesting that uh, that's kind of how Bowie became a fan too, was that Mm -hmm. he... He was dating a girl that Walker had dated. Yes. And Walker 
Walker's ex-girlfriend was playing his album still uh -huh, and but we uh -huh. heard them and thought man I you kind of fell in love with the voice right and I that was remember that, that. Rich, that the kind of rich weird baritone I don't even know how you would describe his voice in the baritone. 60s yeah yeah, it was just You're this, right. Um, that is how Bowie had it. it. Was and you know what? A number of a number of moments on that film and in the goth book, they do credit that these women that they were hanging out with were turning them on to all kinds of music they weren't yes. going to, and they wanted to be with these women. So they're like, yes, "I'll listen to your music." <laughs> exactly. Walker himself is talking about how a, a German yes. Playboy bunny introduced him to Jacques Brel in the first yes. place. I know, and isn't that amazing? Music. I loved it that he shared that, that he went to the Playboy Mansion in, uh, or the Playboy House in London yeah. and then met these girls, these women, and, and they turned them on to all kinds of other music. It's really yeah, fabulous. Just, just hanging out and just listening to music and just having it on in the background. It's yeah. not, I don't think we're even sitting down to listen no. to it, but right. hearing a voice from another room and going, hey, I kind of like that. Right. Which and I Bowie was actually became a, an executive uh, executive producer on this film. So he did, yeah. I, and I do miss that. I, I I used to love that part where music was a lot more social. Like you go to someone's house on Friday or Saturday night, maybe have some beer, and you're yeah, you're probably listening to it in the background. But now yeah. it's like I'm really hunting out music on my own to listen to, rather it's, than it's rather harder. Yeah, it's harder. Making those connections anymore. Yeah. And maybe we all have an obligation to, you know, play some Scott Walker in the background. <laughs> Friends yeah. over. It's true. Just to see what happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> Most people will probably tell you to turn it off, but there's going to be the two or three who really gravitate. Right. And, you know, the other funny thing is that I've listened to a fair bit of experimental music in my life from Brian Eno to Luciano Berrio to Diamanda Gallas. So it is a really strange, it's a quite an interesting feeling to find somebody, you don't know everything. It's, it's funny that we didn't yeah. know his yeah. material somehow. Yeah. So, somehow in our experience, we just missed it. Well, and you can't know everything. You can't know everyone. So it's kind of refreshing to have this experience. Did you ever see Searching for Sugarman? Yes. Yeah, that's that whole thing where somebody had a whole musical career Never heard of him. Nobody in America really knew him, but he was completely famous in Africa and Australia. He was like Elvis. Have you seen that, Sarah? Yeah. yeah. Um, and there are a couple of music documentaries like that that could just yeah. bring you into a whole other world. I've always really liked uh, The Devil and Daniel Johnston, too. Oh, God, that's a great one. Yes. yes. Yeah. It is. Yes. It, is. it not only delves into mental illness, but it it, it brings you into the whole world of outsider music. Kind of Definitely. Doors to that. Good introduction. Yes. When you mentioned popular in other places, mm -hmm. uh, what just popped into my mind is that Tom Waits song. He was big in Japan. Oh, yeah. Big, big Japan. in Japan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's and you know, when I was a kid, there was a professional wrestler um, in our town named Tiger Jeet Singh, who was sort of a a journeyman professional wrestler on that circuit of, mm. you know, strange passion plays that they did. Uh, but he was tremendously popular in Japan. He was like a household word there. That is funny. Yeah, that's crazy. We're, you know, and a whole pick up on something. whole separate career. And right. then with the money he made in Japan, right. he apparently built himself like this giant mansion, mm. like a castle in Brampton. Mm. Which reminds me of, yeah, that is a good thing, but it also reminds me of something else in 
this movie, which I've forgotten the name. Oh, the movie is actually called 30 Century Man. It's not called Scott Walker or anything like that. Or it's, it's called, called Scott Walker, 30 Century Man. Oh, there you go. Scott Walker, 30 both. Century Man. Yeah. Okay. And he talks about when he was young, he was super into Scandinavian films and art house and avant-garde films. And he goes to Europe and London and he can't wait to talk about them. He figures in Europe, everyone's going to talk about these films. All they want to do is talk about American films. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of funny too, that there was a cultural... He was seeking, he was really seeking. The Chrissy Hine went to it, uh, Britain too to kind of find herself and become a rock star from the Pretenders. Kind of interesting. And so did Bowie. I mean, I guess everybody had their, their time and you have trying to uh, do stuff that they probably could have done anywhere, but just is more fun in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Europe has been an interesting place historically for American musicians particularly blues and and jazz musicians. Um, mm -hmm. There's that wonderful film uh, with Dexter Gordon, Round mm -hmm. Midnight, yes. um, about uh, jazz musicians living in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. and well, because they weren't racist in the same that's way. That's right. And they could get here. gigs and they actually got paid, Yeah, which was, you know, they were getting just ripped off in the States. Mm -hmm. So people like uh, champion Jack Dupree moved from New Orleans to to Scandinavia and just traveled around Europe. He found, you know, a couple of players he liked and they just traveled around playing, right. playing blues throughout Europe for years and years and years, mm -hmm. uh, making all this great music um, completely isolated from the American scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even Ramblin' Jack Elliott toured Europe for years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It would be interesting to know how influential um, Scott Walker. I mean, I know he has a lot of fans in America, but I'm I'm not sure how influential he was. Most of the people interviewed in the documentary are either British mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, he did some work with Ud Lemper, who mm -hmm. was, I don't think she lives in Germany anymore, but she's right. one of the great uh, Kurt Weill singers. She, she yes. does a lot of his music. And yeah. she recorded a couple of Walker songs for a fantastic album that I love, actually. Uh, Punishing Kiss. Punishing Kiss, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a fantastic album. Yeah, I'm gonna have so to. I think he had a big influence over there. Right, right. Definitely. Yeah. And I'm kind of surprised if I heard it, I it didn't really stick with me. I, I I may have heard it, but it really wasn't on my radar either. I know her, but I don't know that album. So that again, just kind of a weird vacuum. The other thing is that his his vocals are his vocals are like part of soundscapes that just mm -hmm. kind of Blow in the air, and it isn't driven by the beat. You know, Very most true. of the music I grew up with is driven by the beat, yeah. and his music really wasn't. Yeah, I don't even know how he's singing in that music, in that those sounds. I don't know how you would go about singing and it. how you count maybe, it off. Maybe there's no rule. Maybe at that point it was very um, you're feeling it, and you know when you need to put your voice in. I mean, I just don't know how you would go ahead and sing to that. It's kind of amazing to me. It's yes, very magical. Yeah, he's singing in like over soundscapes and and voids, like yeah, yeah, playing in distant chimes and things yeah. that you. It's barely music. Barely, music. it is, but it, but it isn't. Yeah, I mean, I I'd almost say it wasn't, but it is. It's noise. I wonder if you know? he had a familiarity with Harry Parch, who did all those um all those homemade instruments. I don't. I wonder. I'm not very familiar either. So. Yeah, it would be, you know, I think there could have been a lot more about his um, 
it's kind of his world. But I mean, obviously, he didn't really want that to be in there. There was something else I really, when he's talking, just to hear him talking, what he's saying, there's kind of nuggets of gold in it. Because he talks about um, a producer's on there. And he said, well, I'm asking him, what kind of a music are we playing? And he said, I don't want to explain it to you. Because then there's too much opportunity to start swinging. You know, yeah, you, he actually he kept it a secret. He would not is, reveal the melody to his engineer. Yeah, correct. And I, I related that to that, that because one, I don't want to do that with when I'm painting something. But when having worked with actors, sometimes they're telling you, asking you, well, listen, what is this about? I said, I don't want to tell you. I want you to figure it out. And um, I, I'll let you know, like, if it's off or you're in a different direction, but I want you to have, I want you to discover it because I've put it in the words, you know, I've put it in there, but you don't want it to be all formulaic and now we're going to do it over and over again. This way, there isn't something to repeat to play again because it's not explained. He really, yeah, he really was leaving it open to the experience even the people working on it would have been experiencing it with him and and he knew when he liked it as you can see on the camera he's like yeah yeah okay yeah you can see him being very pleased by it yes he had a fascinating process and the same with his his lyrics um which are very open to interpretation and yet he would always mm. have a jumping off point like one of his songs uh farmer in the city i think it's called is actually about uh pier paolo pasolini the, the italian mm -hmm. director Right. You wouldn't really know that from listening to it, but I read it somewhere when I was looking crazy. into him. For this, yeah, that's uh, crazy. Who was quite an interesting fellow himself. <laughs> yes, he would take uh, he would take snippets of famous trials, and, and kind of use that as a jumping off point. But it, he wouldn't just stick with that. I mean, his lyrics were so abstract, in a poetic sort of way. You can get a lot out of them. I, I agree. I thought they were incredible. I like that in the film too, when he's singing or what it voicing when he's voicing and then the lyrics are there. You're like, these lyrics are really they're They're so ambiguous. That's it's mm -hmm. like the perfect lyric and, and poetry because you bring yourself in there. It is like, you are like having a waking dream. That's what it, his music is like a waking dream. Yes. In a lot of ways. And it yeah. has a very hypnotic quality. So yeah. I was very yes. surprised towards uh, the end of his interview when he said, I don't want, because I have this, you know, this baritone voice, it's so easy for people to be lulled almost to sleep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that to happen. I want them to stay awake. And I think that's why he moved into, with tilt and drift, I think he moved into the edgier sounds and the more percussive, like discordant stuff just to keep people awake and keep people on edge. He didn't mm -hmm. want them lulled into that sense of safety or, mm -hmm. or being in a dream state. Right. Although that is really fun, especially <laughs> the 60s stuff, to just kind of go away listening to his music. You yeah, know? yeah. You float, float away in, inside of yourself with it, that's for sure. And then again, the other part is he had a money-making opportunity of a career at first. And it really, really would not have been that way. It and wasn't a good fit, him being a pop star. No, he hated it. Not yeah, he was uncomfortable. Term. He didn't like it. And he said, the, just that he said, it didn't matter what we saying because everyone was just screaming. <laughs> he was also not very prolific. 
I mean, after his early 60s yeah. stuff, um, he produced the albums that were called Scott. Yeah. Um, and then after that, the albums were coming like a decade apart. Right. And that's what he, that I found a very bittersweet part of the movie too, when he was saying, well, I didn't do very much. But that's sort of my fault. I, I take responsibility for it. And I wasn't sure whether it was because of substance abuse or because he couldn't get the money because he had wouldn't compromise his vision. So maybe he couldn't get the funding to get the or all of the above, all of the above. And he said, that's, that's on me. But he had reached a point, it seemed with Tilt, where that's where if he had done that when he was 30 years old, what music would we have had for the last 40 years of his life? Like he may have hit Tilt when he was 30 if he could have, but he couldn't. Yeah, or, or he maybe never would have got there. Or maybe, yeah, that's the nature of art making because you don't yes. know. You have to go through what you go through to get there. Sometimes yeah. you have to have all your life experience and failures or benefits to kind of go, oh my God, I I, I just had a vision, you know? Because he didn't have the vision of Jack Burrell. He was doing that, but it was not experimental. It was it something. Like he did have to burn away a lot of layers to get at his final work. It took him Good a long point. time. He had to Good go point. through all the crazy, he had to go through the 80s phase with the crunchy drums and the really 80s <laughs> he had to go through that weird country phase and i guess the 70s right. he had to go through a lot to to just burn it away get it what he really wanted to do which was <laughs> well it might not be that weird you might use the metaphor you're you're writing essays you're almost doing that when you're writing an essay you're kind of burning you're starting out you got the ideas you're trying to construct it and then you're like why didn't I get here? Sometimes I don't get there for a month. Like, why didn't I get here on the first day I started writing? And we measure success by things like you got the record contract, uh -huh. you got the big concert venues, mm -hmm. you got the videos, all of those sorts of, mm -hmm. of things. But imagine for a minute that he started the other way around, started with the super creative work. Mm -hmm. Who's going to give that? Who's going to give somebody doing that a record contract? Nobody. Right. We can't make money doing this. No. Right. He was able to have enough recognition from his early work that kind of gave him an in, a way into the industry mm -hmm. um, and allowed him to get some of this stuff done, even though it wasn't very commercial. That's true. It's very true. And he probably built up a, a, a few producers that believed in him of relationships, you know. Hey, he what also about had, he got? Oh, sorry. He didn't start off with the Walker brothers either. He had an even earlier incarnation as an almost Justin Bieber like yes. uh, crooner who had a lot of girls. Right. I forgot about that. Yeah. I guess he must have had um, uh, a very mature voice at a young age that attracted people to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're he right. He had so. the right look, he had the right voice. Yeah. 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 And he was able to modulate his voice kind of. Not not make it go too high, but he definitely disguised that like rich, booming baritone that he mm -hmm. had later on. Yeah, he definitely yes. toned it down. Right. Yes, there's one that they play during the film where his voice. I want to call it falsetto, but it, it, it wasn't a true falsetto. Mm -hmm. But he was clearly singing at the the height of his range. <laughs> yeah. 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 You could even see him sending it up. I think it was the Tom Rush song. I don't know if I think so. That could have been too later on. I don't know. Um, there's something else you guys said. 
I wonder, I know he was, he wrote a lot of material. I wonder if he wrote for other people. They didn't really talk about that at all. Yeah, I thought, I thought he, did he not write that for Utilemke? I thought he oh, may that, have no? written, he yeah, may okay. have written that for her. I don't know. He wrote it for her necessarily, but, okay. but he, yeah, he let her record like it. In America. There are lots of there are lots of uh, performers or who are songwriters who whose bread and butter was really writing mm -hmm. for other people. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Steve Earle, Towns mm -hmm. Van Zandt, mm -hmm. uh, Guy Clark, Carol King, Carol King for certain, uh, Neil Sedaka, mm -hmm. uh, Neil Diamond. I mean, they were in the the business of cranking out. What's that, songs. Jack Nietzsche? You mentioned earlier too. Jack Nietzsche, sure. <laughs> Sure, and the uh, and uh, uh, wall of sound dude as well. Karen Warren is that for Diane Warren? Sorry, Diane Warren. Well, she's she's written probably all the Oscar winning you know torch songs. She's probably written them. Oh yeah, yeah. She's like uh, remember Marvin Hamlish? <laughs> you you know that's not Jennifer Warren. No, no, that's Jennifer Warren did the uh, the covers of. Um, uh, what's his name? Guy did Suzanne. Oh, Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen, yeah. But yes, yes. So I don't think he had that um, knack for writing no. people. And he, I don't. He, did, he didn't have that kind of mainstream access oh. after he went experimental. He did do um, a film soundtrack, but it was a film right. I haven't seen. No, but didn't wasn't it interesting? They showed it in the the being made right in the film. That's also worth seeing the movie for that bizarre film set and bizarre <laughs> movie. I don't even know what was happening. I don't remember the name of it, but we have to watch it. It was crazy. Lola X, I think was the title. What was it called? Lola, Lola X. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it looked amazing. Since it did. I would watch it now just to hear the music, but it looked good on its own. It did look good on its own. It was very artistic and it had incredible music and an incredible soundtrack. But this made me wonder, are there any other artists, I can't think of any oh. in like the, the avant-garde genre who had this same path where mm. they, they go from mainstream pop success, mm -hmm. top tens, to mm -hmm. this. Has there been any other avant-garde musician who's followed that sort of path? Oh God, that I is such think. a good question. That I feel not, like there is. Not quite the same thing, but uh, Sun Ra had yeah, some Sun success Ra. with more mainstream jazz and some uh, R&B sides that his band released mm -hmm. um, before he started doing work with um, wonderful instruments like the dental drill. <laughs> <laughs> at, you know, at one point I started listening to Sun Ra and I really loved his music. And then I think I was at my buddy Vox's place and we were we were playing go and he put on something that i mean it was 40 minutes of solid dental drill <laughs> until he couldn't stand this anymore i think it was uh an effort to psychologically destroy me so he could win i was right? just gonna say that's like soviet style uh like mental mental uh jujitsu that he's doing on you there Who did that box yeah oh my god that's hilarious I wonder if Vox is her Scott Walker. Well, we'll have to ask. We'll him. have to find out. Maybe he's listening today. Um, yeah. You can write in Vox and yeah, tell us. Yeah. That is a good question. How many people have gone from mainstream and become, I mean, I'd almost wish I could say Elvis Presley, but because he went mainstream and then he went operatic. And, but he had so many fans that he never stopped. But I think some of that music was pretty experimental, crazy. 
but there are lots of bands I think who operated on sort of on the edge of the music industry. Mm-hmm. They were pop enough that they could get records. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jethro Tull. Yeah, and I guess Radiohead to some degree. I mean, they had ex- insane success, but they've never failed. They've never become a no-name band, but they did become more and more avant-garde, I would think, or more shoegazer or whatever. But they were always like that. They were always like that. Permitted once you build up that profile, you are permitted some more risks, and you and are. your fans will kind of tolerate it. Right. So and there I mean, is that. Look at the Beatles, actually. It's yeah. not unlike the Beatles because the Beatles were mainstream pop, screaming girls, and then they made the White Album. Well, plus they were making really fairly pretty pop music. Yeah. You know, very catchy hooks. Yeah, but they did try to, I mean, we have world music because of George Harris. He brought that into a trend. But the White Album, they did have all kinds of experimental sounds on it. But you know, not quite the same. They didn't. They didn't leave everyone behind. <laughs> no, no. And they almost. You could argue that they had to transition. I mean, you they can't did. stay a staple band forever. You have to. You can't be and a boy I, band. Yeah, and I think the great rock bands do have those transitional albums where they all of a sudden become their own, like Actung Baby or Zuropa for U two. U two changed at uh, Zuropa. You know, whether you like them or not, that album was. Um, it was a transition, just like some painters have transitional art, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is there is kind of a change or die mandate sometimes, you know. Yes, you can't yes. stick with the same form. Uh, in the mid '60s, look at Bob Dylan, went from folk there singer to, to rocker. That's a good example, right? And the more the more they booed him, the more he said, "Turn it up." <laughs> yeah, I once that, read a book by this crazy evangelical guy. Who, he, it was an anti-rock book. Okay. And he claims that he was the guy who stood up and yelled traitor the <laughs> first time Dylan plugged in his guitar and, and used it. Wow. Wow. I doubt that's true, but it's interesting. Well, you know what? He may not be telling the truth, but he's the one who, who owns it. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's the, the only one to claim to be that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's not afraid to claim to be that person. <laughs> he's not an he's expert. Not your only claim to fame, it's sad. Well, and, and now with the fullness of a little bit of time, we look back and say, what's the big deal? Yeah, plugged in his instrument. So what? Yeah. Well, the so what was that it was he was sort of borderline on the resistance of Brit pop, right? Of the British invasion, which was electric, fashion, um, good looking, whereas the Grateful Dead, not that they weren't good looking, and they um the charlatans and a little bit of Bob Dylan, they were resisting the British invasion by being Americana. And folk and Woody Guthrie and 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 do it yourself. Well, except that Americana didn't exist. Americana. This is actually I have to make this yeah. point here. Yeah. Americana is a marketing term. Okay. So let's just be clear oh, about this. That's they didn't know what to do with like the David Brombergs of the world who <laughs> do, do music that fits into different genres and you don't know where to put, okay where to stack the records yeah. right yeah and so they invented Americana but okay. I mean it's just really the misfits. Okay. All right. I like to think that we're we're a little more accepting of crossover success these days. I think so. Like Scott Walker is is shocking going from from the 60s uh-huh. to the 80s, but uh-huh. now we see people do that, move into other genres. We see country artists doing hip hop and hip hop doing right. country. We're not as uncomfortable with it. I think no. we're willing to give them that leeway. That's a good point too. And maybe that's why he's so unusual is that we really weren't in that that realm like we are now we're 
you know, we we let Dolly Parton make a rock and roll album. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. Dolly can do whatever she, she wants. She can do whatever she wants, and she's <laughs> in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now. Um, just going to check on my... She is, after all, a superhero. She is a superhero. Um, even if she doesn't wear a cape. Something, even if she doesn't cape. Scott Walker also said, don't take the songs too seriously. And that answers back to the Pasolini director film. He said sometimes he starts out with a... Uh, his inspiration might be politics, but that's just to get him going. He's not even attached he to that. He talked about that. He did. He said, I'm not even attached to that. That's like, it, he made it sound like his sketchbook almost. Like he starts with an idea and not unlike David Lynch, where Lynch obviously goes for these visual, he's not worried about making a linear story. He's going for some ideas and he's letting the ideas dictate the pro the uh, the finished peace yes he said uh, and scott walker said ultimately all of your work is about yourself that's fair enough and he's always had nightmares it's interesting because the the framing device for this um documentary was that he was like orpheus yes he, he compared his yes, early 60s style the walker brothers style to his his very latest work in the early 2000s oh, and said what happened to this man Mm -hmm. in between these two times mm -hmm. what did he go through what did he experience that brought him to this mm -hmm. it and is we like he went down into the depths right we don't learn that except he did say that he imbibed too much yes and i'm going to assume that the part of the problem of his maybe not being as prolific was that he was drinking too much and, and, you know, maybe he did have to go into recovery. Or maybe it's self-esteem issues or, self or or various mental illnesses yeah. that could have slowed him down. Very true. And all Very kinds true. of people have problems we have no idea we about. Do. Yeah, and he wasn't bringing that out. That The film wasn't about that. It is still a mystery. No, it is a mystery of, of what depth did he go into. And uh, it did, at the end, it doesn't really matter. It's just that he came back and shared them. Yes. It does it, matter. It seems yeah. that the musicians who admired him and were influenced by him uh, embraced the mystery. Like David Bowie saying, oh, nobody knows anything about him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he said, I don't think about what the lyrics mean. I just go for the ride, basically. I'm paraphrasing. But he said, I just go with it. If it, I don't worry about, oh, it's a song about. I let those poets. And, and his lyrics are like that. They, they, they're so magical. They really, really some of the finest lyrics or poetry i've heard in a long time and i hadn't heard them until now <laughs> coming back to the word vertiginous he uses, oh my god he i typed that out too what does vertiginous yeah. mean i wrote it in my phone today like, a, like a, that feeling of being at a dizzying height almost like a vertigo of feeling like you're gonna course, fall from a great height oh yeah that's funny because i was gonna mention it just now but i was afraid i was gonna mispronounce it so i said forget it i'm not gonna bring it up <laughs> yeah i had the definition on the, on, the, on the tip of you my did? brain but i was feeling dizzy oh <laughs> yeah, he brings, he brought it up so often and it does describe so much of his music where you do feel he brings you up to this height and you just you're kind of lost mm. for a moment in oh. his in his music and his vocals the lyrics it's a great word for for what he did what he achieved the the film is certainly a really interesting look at somebody that 
we probably should know more about than we do because mm -hmm. of the nature of the, the music business mm -hmm. in which we're mass marketed so much. It's hard to get past it to maybe the more interesting stuff sometimes. Who was the director? Did you look it up? Uh, yes, it's Stephen Kijak. Right. I was wondering if he was a painter related to the British painter, but I don't think he is. Um, and do you know what other thing? I think he's done a couple of know. other music um, uh, pieces. I don't know. I don't know. I failed to do my research. Right. Well, I mean, I had, um, I, I, I did look it up earlier and I've forgotten, but I, I did really like, how did you feel about the di di direction overall? I thought it was pretty it was, good. It was well paced. It was, they kept it, uh, they kept it interesting. Uh, I wasn't bored anywhere through it. I was quite fascinated throughout it. Uh, there were lots of, of little surprising tidbits that, that kind of made it a little bit special, like, like Buddy punching the beat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, he did Stones in Exile. So that's going to be a, a Rowan Stones movie. He did, um, He's he's worked with um, David Bowie, Scott Walker, the Rolling Stones, Jaco Pastorius, Rob Trujillo, Trulio, Backstreet Boys, X, Japan, Leonard Skinner, Judy Garland, and the Smiths. Well, that's an oddball mix, isn't it? Quite a range, yeah. yeah. As a film director and films about music and musicians, so he's he's been doing it for a while. He's uh, you know, he's done a number of pieces, so that's kind of interesting. What about the woman that you mentioned, Orpheus? They pick a, a narrator at one point that's almost like the female version of Scott Walker's voice when she goes, what happened to this man who makes Orpheus? <laughs> and then at the end, she's got a really almost stereotypical film narrator's voice. It was pretty, that also added to the feeling of going on a dream journey in this documentary. Yes. Yeah. I have to throw in a word about the production company, Oscilloscope. Um, the name was so familiar to me, and I realized I have a couple of their other documentaries. Oh. Uh, they did a really great one about William Burroughs, probably the best documentary okay. about yeah. him. Wish I could remember the title, but just Oscilloscope, William Burroughs, if you're interested, just Google yeah, that. Yeah, I think I've seen it because I think we, we even went to a party on it for it. Yeah. So they've um, done some great films, and it was actually started by the late uh, Adam from the Beastie Boys. Wow. Yeah. That is kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. So there's some interesting connections there with the uh, the right. film and distribution company that did yeah, that this. That is pretty so cool. Good outfit. That's pretty cool. I want to find the uh, William Burroughs if I can. I can't find it. It's too. Uh... You know, there was another. There's an American uh, singer who started off as a pop singer and went into all kinds of experimental uh, works later. The guy who was in the box tops who sang the letter. Oh, I know. Not. I know the one you mean, but I don't know his name. I would, yeah, I'm just going to look know. that up here. Talk for a minute. Okay. I'll, I'll well, I'm looking at um, a list of their uh, Sophie Jones. This is some of the. Um, yeah, Adam. The uh, recording, the record company Adam Yoch from the Beastie Boys. You're right, and um, and they've been in business well, about 15 years ago. So they've got a, a ton of music documentaries. You're they, right. They have a great catalog. Yeah, they have an amazing catalog. It really is. I'm trying to find the um, the person I'm thinking was yes. Alex Chilton. Okay, tell us about him. Well, Alex Chilton was uh, like a 16 or 17 year old singer uh, who was in the box tops and they had a huge hit with the letter. Oh. And he went on to um, to the band Big Star, 
which were hugely influential so. band, but maybe weren't hugely popular. And then he did a lot of uh, production work with um, with indie music uh, of different varieties, um, working in different genres. So similar kind of story uh, about somebody who wanted to go past the the kind of sugary pop they started off with uh, into more creative works. Right. Uh, although maybe Alex Chilton's transformation wasn't as stark. Right. Right. William Burroughs, A Man Within. And actually, we did go to we did go and, and we were at a party in Chicago. There was a, a release party for it. So yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah, I couldn't remember the name, but it's A Man Within. And you know what? I did a little archive work on that, too. Um, I was just putting in references at the film company before it came out. Um, just weird things at, at an office in Chicago, looking up dates and articles. Isn't that funny? Wow. Yeah, just a little volunteer work. It wasn't, it was just a volunteer job and it was really cool. And um, and it, it's with this great gallery in, in Chicago that is was associated with that production as well. Hmm. yeah and at the party you know who came was the fellow who played him the actor who played william burroughs in naked lunch okay, yeah. and, uh, and i'm completely blank and buckaroo bonsai uh, you know what i did not finish my beer i probably should have finished my beer tonight i'm, well, I'm that's failing. your whole problem that's my whole problem i was just drinking coffee <laughs> was it fred? is that is that the actor's name what did you say pardon Fred Ward is that the actor's name? No, but um, I love that actor. No, no, it's the guy who played Robocop and uh, William Burroughs and Buckaroo Bonsai. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, okay, no. I love him, and I'm completely forgetting his name. Peter. Well, Candy looks that up. <laughs> Let me just mention that if you want to see Scott Walker, Thirty Century Man, I was able to rent it from the good folks at YouTube today for four ninety nine. Right. Um, it looked like you could rent it on prime as well but when i attempted to do that i couldn't find it so i searched it and it said it's on prime but i couldn't find it on prime mm -hmm. so i mm -hmm. thought let's see if it's on youtube mm -hmm. and there it was under rent me yeah no problem and i saw i rented it on amazon did you get it on youtube as well yeah yeah, yeah. i did yeah yeah very good so, did you find i it did peter here? weller i'm embarrassed because peter I weller. yes i believe that i forgot his name he plays william burroughs in David Cronenberg movie. Yes, oh. and I'm pretty sure he's in the documentary as well. He's in the yes. documentary, and that's why he was at the party because he had done some work for the documentary. Yes, exactly. He had, he had some very notable yes. interview, and I believe the director was Yanni. I forgot his last name too. So I'm just fucking up left, right, and center tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long day, and uh, like I said, I only had half a beer. <laughs> so Candy came here, and. No, no, don't, don't no, tell me that story. No, no, no. Okay, you all have to wait. Yeah. <laughs> there was a wait? story on the tip of my brain, and I have been censored. You have to wait for the next episode. <laughs> we don't want to cloud up this one. That's right. I, I expect to hear it then. I'll yeah, be you'll hear it. You'll hear it. Um, Sarah, this was fantastic. You really inspired us both to make sure we watch the movie. I'm so glad I did. I'd like to thank David Thousand Words, who has been a previous guest on here for even telling us about 30th Century Man. Oh. I think David was surprised that we hadn't heard oh, it. He was gobsmacked, yeah. But you know what else? <laughs> I have heard the song 30th Century Man. Did I mention that earlier too? But I thought it was Mark Bolin 
and T Rex. T Rex, right? Song. That's what you said before. Yeah, I had no idea. I, I mean, so I you had heard some Scott Walker. You just I did hear Scott Walker. I just didn't know it. Was. Didn't realize it. Yeah, I didn't know it. Yeah, isn't that crazy? And I probably heard him on other people's quoting him or referencing or riffing or in a movie or something. Undoubtedly, and we've all heard the sun ain't gonna shine anymore. I think everyone on the planet yes, has definitely. Okay, tell us what, one or two other documentaries on music you've really liked, if you can think of them. Oh, right you know you what? Know. I know this is this is gonna be a little too too soon for some people, but I really love Crock of Gold, which is about the late Shane McGowan of the poet. Oh, it is really soon, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, That's but okay. it's a it's fantastic, fantastic just... documentary. If you're missing him, if you just want to have a Memorial Day, I would what sit would you down. Like about it? Oh, it's all it's all Shane McGowan. It's, it's just okay. You're him. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, Shane McGowan really was personality to me, at least, who at the same time embodied this wonderful charm and way with a tune, mm -hmm. um, coupled with the kind of devastating sadness and self destruction that he embodied throughout much of his life. Yeah. And that'll be a good documentary. I'll, I'll look the documentary to really, really captures that too. It's almost like that. There's the tragic, but it's again the charm, like you uh -huh. say, the kind of grit and grace that he had, and just just and a, he had a, a way of delivering a, a song which was tremendously powerful. Yeah, very emotional. Like his version of "Dirty Old Town" is just so good. I could listen to it over and over and over again. I've heard a lot of people say, just because of the timing, that "Fairy Tale in New York" is their favorite Christmas song. Mm -hmm. <laughs> also, kind yeah. of sad. Yep. Uh, well, I've, I've, we probably in our house play it every Christmas yeah. for sure. Yeah. But yeah, it is. It, it it is it a Christmas song? Yeah, kind of. It's a Christmas song well, for our time. It is, but I mean, any, any song that starts out uh, Christmas Eve in the drunk tank, you know, it's not your standard deck the halls with. No. Uh, Bells of Holly. No, and and not quite as happy as Christmas at the airport by oh, also a wonderful. Christmas I love that song. song. Yeah, we <laughs> might have to play that later um, on the end of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can put some of these songs on there. Shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, well that, what, would be, that would be my recommendation. Okay, great. Well, my, one of my very very favorite music documentaries is The Future Is Unwritten which I actually should order for you because I don't know if you can find it online, but it's a Joe Sturmer story. It's incredible. Oh, I'd like to watch it. Absolutely that. beautiful. I've not seen it either, which amazes me because I do. I think you'll love it. You will love it. And it's very well done. It's Julian Temple. I mean, it's very well done. It starts out like when it starts out, I'm like, I don't understand why he's doing it this way. And then afterwards you're like, yes, get a bonfire. <laughs> I just watched a very short music documentary. Mm -hmm. That was quite nice uh, about, um, about uh, a conjunto accordion player carrying on that tradition. And so they talk about where the music came from and German immigrants in South Texas um, bringing the polka um, and depositing, as the narrator says, uh, 49 accordions wherever they went. <laughs> uh, and then it, uh, it, it profiles one particular uh, performer um, and um, how he's taught his son and his grandson to play. Um, and then they go out with a wonderful version of La Bamba. 
just a killer version. <laughs> uh, so maybe we'll put up the link to that yeah, one as well. A much idea. different kind of uh, uh, a music documentary in that it's about uh, about grabbing onto the right. traditional music right. and making it contemporary right. as opposed to um, going into a kind of personal creative mm -hmm. journey. Mm -hmm. You know what is great about music documentaries, I think, uh, is that you don't have to like the music to get something from the documentary about the music or the person making it. You know, it doesn't have to be your style of music and you can get right into it because it's, you know, about a creative person. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would even watch a documentary about classical music. I, I like Amadeus. <laughs> <laughs> Not a documentary. <laughs> Sarah, you're the best. Thank thanks you for, for coming on here and thanks for being a, a honorary agent, a for real agent. Awesome to join you again. Always so fun. And thank you so much for introducing me to this documentary. I, I've been familiar with Scott Walker. I hadn't listened to him in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. To get back into it, yeah. maybe not much because too much is a lot but get <laughs> um, it just just dip a toe back into skull walker is really fun yeah you gotta have the right drugs i think <laughs> yeah or one toe at a time one toe at a, a time. strong support system <laughs> strong support system a way back all right thank you we'll be back at you soon with another episode of the agency if it heads this way when the moon is slow Come over and pray They'll turn the buffalo They'll turn the buffalo There's a need to sleep In the shaggy stomach Slide around his eye with your loving toe. If he heads this way, don't you say hello. Get out of the way, they'll turn the buffalo. They'll turn the buffalo.